How's it, everyone? Welcome back to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Nicholas Lorimer, and I'm joined by the other host, Gabriel Krauser. Gabriel, Gabriel. Krauser. Here I am. We, we have to talk like this because we just uh, did an episode of the Daily Friend podcast, which has been yeah. trending for the last several weeks as the most popular with it podcast on politics in South Africa. And that's clapping it. And we and we just finished our Friday edition talking about South African biltong in Scotland, which is a great way to get protein if you want to go to the gym. And this is my gym voice. And, and you've and got to clap giving, gym hard, but You've got to clap it, but. Uh So we did not have an episode last week because I uh, had taken the weekend off uh, because I am a lazy good for nothing. Um but uh, I very much enjoyed it, and we are now back to provide you with whatever it is we provide you with. Dude, if you're the lazy one, I feel like you're leaving <laughs> me no room to be who I am. <laughs> well, you know, uh, this is this is this is not exactly that's not a high bar to pass for me for me to be the for you for me to be the lazy one. Dude, I feel like anyway. we're both too lazy to even finish this joke. No, no, yeah, no, you're right, you're right. Um, yeah, so uh, as always, we don't always have a clear picture of what exactly we're going to talk about. But I was rather intrigued by a interesting decision in the United States. And it kind of has some resonance here as well, because uh, we, we deal with not exactly the same issues, but, but similar ones. Um, and that is that the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that about half of the state of Oklahoma actually belongs to Native Americans and is part of a Native American reservation. So it was quite a close voted uh, thing. You know, on the, the American Supreme Court, there's nine justices and they vote on the outcome of cases after they've considered the arguments. It was a 5-4 decision. So... Very, uh, very tight with a swing vote. Uh, the, the the vote who was kind of unexpectedly on the, on the side of the ruling was uh, Neil Gorsuch, uh, who was one of the Trump appointees, the Trump's first appointee. Um, and basically, they said that an eastern chunk of the state, including its second biggest city, which is the city of Tulsa, um, is part of a reservation because back in uh, whenever the whenever Congress was fiddling about with the Native American reservations, uh, they didn't properly abolish it. Um, so over the years, Congress stripped out a couple of the the reservations that exist, although they left some, and some are still exist in America. And the reservations in America are very weird, right? Because they're kind of like almost sovereign territories within the United States in a lot of ways. Um, they're almost like states, but not quite. Uh, they're kind of their own thing, and they're this ancient relic of the past where a lot of Native Americans still actually live. Um, anyway, the, the origins of this case are quite interesting because there was a dude who uh, called Jimmy McGitt who was convicted in 1997 of raping a girl. Um, and he said that the historical claim of the Creek Nation to the land where the assault, assault occurred meant that he could not be prosecuted under the Oklahoma state government because they found him guilty of this uh, rape of this girl. And as a result, this got kicked all the way up the, the levels of the court until eventually it went to the Supreme Court and they found that he was correct and that the, the reservation had not been properly terminated. It's kind of a weird case. Um, and I think the headlines for what we'll get to in a second are a little bit overblown on this. But uh, what are your initial thoughts on this, Gabriel? You often have a philosophical bent to these sort of things. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It is. I'm not particularly familiar with the case, and I'm assuming from your description of Neil Gorsuch as being the swing voter that it was the sort of more Democrat justices that voted for this, and the yeah, more the justices, the justices appointed by Democrats, all voted uh, that it was part of the reservation, and the justices appointed by uh, Republicans all voted that it was. Not that the reservation had been terminated in the past. Uh, and Neil Gorsuch, who was appointed by a Republican, uh, voted with the Democrats or the liberal justices, as they're sometimes called, which is not really fair because they actually do have, they're not strict partisans, I think. Uh, well, maybe yeah. some are, but most aren't. Yeah, that's good to point out. So I suppose I think there is this, uh, it feels like a paradoxical case because 
if you think about it from an outcomes point of view, you don't want a rapist to be getting off on a technicality. But if you think of it from a procedural point of view, you don't want to be uh, overlooking poor procedure. Uh, and due process, part of what due process guarantees is that laws are legible, understandable, and accessible, that you can know what the law is. And that it's so apparently, apparently the original law which created the reservation uh, said that the federal government gives this land to the Creek Nation in perpetuity, uh, which is a little bit, in terms of language, it's a little bit difficult to get away from. <laughs> that, that is ambitious, but you can definitely, you can definitely, uh, it turns out that the American Constitution has it that there's no law that can't be undone. Right, with a sufficient yeah, no, congressional. Um, so I think I think the other side of this case argued that the reservation had actually been reduced in size, but that uh, the language was so ambiguous, though this is what created the problem. Um, and this is often when courts get involved is when language is not very good in a piece of legislation, which unfortunately at the beginning of the twentieth uh, century. Congress was not very good at writing a lot of laws, and it put a lot of uh, vague things. At one point, um, I think in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, it turned out that Congress had passed a law which made every single contract illegal in the entire United States. Nice. <laughs> which is... <laughs> they were like, if it's written in words, then it's not I good. I think they said any... I think they said restricting trade of any kind was illegal, um, but a contract inherently does that because it forces you to fulfill certain obligations and uh, yeah. carry out certain duties. Uh, so <laughs> they didn't think it this true. was. Yeah. So it sounds. Not so I suppose my question to you is: uh, It sounds like the court made the right call insofar as it says. I mean, so from a philosophical point of view, it's this ruling sounds to me very much like a clapback to a pattern that we've been seeing of judicial overreach of super legislators effectively is one of the American phrases where yeah. uh, the Congress that, is that, too lazy to draft laws and the executive is too nervous to make political decisions that are going to be popular among some people, but unpopular amongst other people. And so they defer to the courts in the hopes that the courts are going to, res the courts are going to resolve the issue and the courts too often have resolved that issue. And, Lord, uh, what's his name? Lord Scranton. Uh, I mm. hope I'm not, not pronounce, mispronouncing that. Scranton. Scranton. I don't know whatever. Something like whatever. that. He was a. He was. He was the Brits just established a Supreme Court officially um, only ten years ago or something like that, and he was one of their first Supreme Court justices. They'd had something which was effectively a Supreme Court, but not nominally so. And he, after his retirement from his post. Um, has been quite a strong advocate for resisting the impulse to judicial overreach. He's been quite critical of British and American and various other Supreme Courts. He did a BBC wreath lecture. It was one of the great things the BBC do do um, last year that I think we discussed a little bit where he, where he we got into some of the details about that. But so at that level, it seems like the court's doing the right thing. It's saying, look, if we want to have good laws, we have a system for how you get them, and that's Congress, and Congress has to figure this out. And you can't have ambiguous language and you can't kind of just trust us to give you the consequences that you want, regardless of the laws that you have. But what exactly. about the consequences? Is this, is this guy going to get off the rape uh, charge because of the well, Supreme Court? It's a little bit complicated. So in the U.S., the reservation stuff means that if you are a registered member of a Native American tribe, you can't be tried by the states, I don't think, if you commit a crime within land that's deemed a reservation. In this case, it would be, you know, this chunk of Oklahoma. Um, this doesn't apply to non-Native American Americans, which is one of the weird parts about this this law. Uh, but the guy can still be charged in a federal court, just not by a state court, because they have this, you know, complex federal yeah. system. Uh, so regardless of whether the conviction is overturned, he can be taken straight to trial again um, for you know, uh, the, on, on, uh, by the federal cry, by the federal system. I'm not sure in the specifics of his case, maybe he will get off, which is why he pursued this case. Um, mm -hmm. He is 71 now. Uh, so the dude has, I think he's been in and out of courts and prison since 1997 uh, when uh -huh. he committed this rape. 
so it's not exactly like a you know this dude's getting off scot free without without any sort of consequences. Um, but basically, the upshot of what's actually going to happen now is uh, there's a lot of back taxes or there's a lot of taxes that have been paid by Native Americans in this area to the state government of Oklahoma over the years, which they can probably now bring a case to claim that they never had to pay and therefore should be paid back. Uh, and also there's going to be a bunch of convictions of crimes that Native American people committed in this particular region uh, that will now all of a sudden have to be tried in federal courts, not in state courts. So it's kind of weird because it's one of these very technical legal decisions that's going to cause uh, all sorts of odd odd ructions. But I think your, your characterization of this was completely correct, which is that um, it is a case of, of Neil Gorsuch is, is well known for this because he's quite a you know, he's very keen on the 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 justices not writing the law. Yeah. Um, if Congress writes a law, you have to kind of take it at its word. And uh, in in that earlier case I cited where they had made all contracts illegal, the court did exactly the opposite of this. It said, well, that's ridiculous. So we're just going to rule that that's not what they meant. And <laughs> the yeah. opportunities for abuse at that point become extreme. Uh, one of the most famous yeah. examples and one of the most controversial, of course, is uh, Roe v. Wade, which was this case that basically def uh, enabled abortion to be legalized in every state in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and that law was criticized by pro-abortion advocate Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who later became a Supreme Court justice as being yeah. something that would hurt the abortion cause because she believed that it was founded on such dubious reading of the law. They found, I think, that there was a right to privacy that meant that you could have an abortion, which is a <laughs> you have, to, you have yeah. to be a little bit pretzely in your legal arguing to uh, to come to that conclusion. Yeah, um, I, I, and we, d we discussed that before. I mean, I think uh, I'm certainly of the... Uh, you know, I, I like the idea of uh, abortions being legal. I do like that idea. But I, I like Ruth, Gadebins, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, think that it, it, was, a, it was a terrible decision. And, and one, of the, one of the interesting things about that decision is that you can see it. I, I saw it play out in philosophy seminars at Princeton, where the sort of canonical case when we did practical ethical practical ethics, the canonical case that was taken to us to think about abortion was the violinist, right? And this was written by a philosopher, a feminist philosopher, whose name I can't remember right now. But the idea is as follows. Hold on. I'm getting a cue as to what this philosopher's name is. Thompson. Thompson. Something Thompson. What's the first name? Two crickets <laughs> coming at you live. <laughs> okay. Judith Thompson. Uh, and the argument goes like this. So you go to hospital to get some, you know, uh, a basic procedure, get your blood tested. But you have to go under anesthetic for some reason. And you wake up and you're hooked up to a violinist. Intravenous, your blood is being shared with this violinist. And your heart is doing the work of pumping this blood. And uh, they say to you, you know, if we unplug you, then this violinist is going to die. And then the question is, do you have the right to say, well, you know, that sucks, but I didn't ask for this. So, yeah, unplug me. Uh, and and I think there is a strong intuition that if you're going to be stuck there for nine months in the hospital ward, plugged into some random violinist, then you should have the right to say, this really does suck, but it's it's involuntary and it's it's going to kind of ruin my life. You know, I can't afford to, you know, I've got kids I've got to take care of, other kids, or I've got projects, I've got university that I've got to go to, I've got jobs that I've got to do, I've got money that I've got to make, um, I've got duties of care that make it impossible for me to do this, and so let me be. Now, my, and, and that's the privacy argument, is that, you know, your, your privacy has somehow been invaded by the doctors who have plugged you into the violinist. Now, my, my sort of immediate intuition was then this is this is a bizarre way of thinking about pregnancy and abortion because firstly you're not completely incapacitated for nine months uh, and secondly it is 
a good analogy for if you've been raped, and that's part of the reason that I'm sort of a strong supporter of the thought that if people have been raped, they definitely should be allowed to have abortions. But it's the, the, the more apt analogy for most cases is you go to the orchestra, and it's a funny kind of orchestra. It's for free, right? You don't have to pay to get in. But if you do it right, it can be the most fantastic symphony you've ever heard. It can really blow your mind. Okay, so it's like free orchestra, potential to blow your mind. Sounds great. But there's one caveat. If you don't wear socks, then afterwards, a violinist might be plugged into you intravenously for like three months. Okay, this is a, this so is an interesting analogy. <laughs> so if you wear socks, you're going to be fine. But if you don't wear socks, instead of paying for the ticket, one in a hundred people or whatever get plugged into a violinist afterwards my feeling then is that if you decided not to wear socks and you get plugged into the violinist uh then you know maybe it's not involuntary maybe that was part of the bargain and you kind of knew it all along and and you should just weather that three months and then you can take care of the violinist afterwards or you can give the violinist away uh but the privacy argument doesn't strike me as being so strong anyway the, that that argument that uh, there really is, uh, in many cases, uh, a sort of, uh, I don't know, as my mom puts it, like, she, she says she's pro-choice. And, like, one of the choices that really matters is the choice to have sex, unprotected sex. Um, to, to think that that's part of the equation is kind of impossible on the uh, Roe v. Wade way of thinking about this and that way of thinking about this has become very mainstream mainstream for pro-abortion for anti-abortion no for pro-abortion advocates and i think it's not the strongest argument for why abortion should be a legal choice that's allowed by the state uh i think it it kind of uh drives people into this corner of emotiveness where one side seems to be like the only side that cares about women's right to choose anything and the other side seems to be the only side that cares about the lives of innocence and that Uh, and that's a very unhelpful place to think about things and and it is and i i mean the one of the surprising things one of the things that you see in america's conservative media like the national review is uh a a, a great uh amount of vitriol and loathing and anger towards brett kavanaugh because they saw him as being a guy like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was critical of Roe v. Wade, and they hoped that the Supreme Court would now be ready to overturn Roe versus Wade, which would not end abortion in America, but which would put it in it the hands of states. states or- yeah. So, so, so there would be a couple of states that would probably ban it, but uh, the majority probably would not. And that didn't happen. And a couple of cases have been taken forward. I think the most compelling case is still being made um, at district level. Uh, but... The, the, the feeling on the conservative side of things is that Kavanaugh was so humiliated by the Democrats during his inauguration that he just feels he must rule in the way that they would like uh, in order to keep that sort of scandal against him quiet. And so, they, and so they're not taking him at his word. And I think that this is, this is emblematic of the broader problem with the courts. They are not good places to resolve political disputes because exactly they because what immediately happens is you start reading into their personal agendas and that undermines the very basis of the rule of law. And the court's worst thing that they can do is what you just described, which is to read into the personal agendas of Congress and say, well, Congress couldn't possibly want guys to get scot-free off of rape uh, or Congress couldn't possibly want all contracts to be rendered null and void uh, because we know them better than that, right? Whether you're imputing salubrious motives or you're imputing villainous motives, uh, if you if you read the personal motives into the law in that kind of way, you, you, you <clears throat> outsource the political job of human beings having right. conversations, and it's into one of the reasons that where it's just not appropriate. It's one of the reasons that America's um, uh, culture war has gotten so out of control because they can't, you know, 
because Congress is so weak, and I think the real problem here is not necessarily the courts, it's actually the legislature being weak. And in South Africa, we see a kind of similar thing here, which is that government doesn't follow procedures correctly through the executive, the legislature passes laws that are unconstitutional or silly, um, and they then get overturned by the courts or they get ruled against, uh, and, and the government gets embarrassed by the courts. I mean, we've seen this recently with like Lamini Zuma's uh, uh, regulations on the lockdown, right? Yeah, and before um, that with marijuana and with... Uh, yeah, yeah, there's there's a million just, things. A million things. Um, and when when legislature is a very good place for resolving these disputes in society because it's like got it's a quite a large body it represents a variety of interests uh it often actually has a variety of people in it you can have extended debates that last for a very long time and aren't bound up in very technical language you know like in a court you have to go by very sort of precise legal reasoning uh whereas when you make a law you can be a little bit more in your reasons for the law, you can range a little bit further, right? You can say we're passing this yeah. law for some sort of moral reason or economic reason, whatever. Um, and so I think also, so, so of course, when a legislature doesn't do its job, like here or in the US, where the legislature is famously useless, uh, Congress is unable to pass anything except the hugs and kitties and butterfly uh, approval yeah. Uh, act um, and all of the uh, all of the members of Congress prefer to sit around uh, opining about how this country is in such danger and how uh, the president needs to save them all or alternatively the president is the devil and needs to yeah. be stopped at every turn uh, so that they can go on to a lucrative career in talk radio or in uh, TV commentary. Book sales. Yeah. <laughs> Book sales, whatever, right? <laughs> There's lots of these. Uh, someone described it as a, a parliament of pundits. Uh, which is a yeah. good phrase. <laughs> well, I, I, I got to say, I grew up with PJ O'Rourke, who described it as a parliament of whores. Yes. Of that so title. have we improved? What would you prefer, whores or pundits? I think probably whores, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting to me because, and I'm, I'm going to do that thing that I sometimes do, which is I bring up medieval history, which doesn't seem particularly related. Uh, but when when legislatures are rubbish... They also increase not just the judiciary's power, but also the executive's power. And this is actually a central fault line of medieval politics, where you had the legislature, or not so much the legislature, but the nobility, because these two things were synonymous in the early days of all legislatures. Um, when they yeah. were more powerful, the executive would be diminished, but... Uh, when the executive was more powerful, they would be diminished. And this tension between them would lead to interesting debates. So there was a long debate in the sort of early modern period about uh, whether the king should rule absolutely or whether the nobles should form part of government. And uh, I think you can see now in the US some some similar things going on, similar processes, not exactly the same, but there's echoes of them. So people have talked about the imperial presidency for a while, and that's directly a result of uh, the legislature being weak. Um, yeah. When you have to, when the legislature doesn't pass any rules, the president is raised in status as the only person who can get anything done. Yeah, I've got a um, phone and, that, and I've got a pen. Was Obama's line, and yeah, yeah, Trump's yeah. line has very much been, "I'll use the executive orders to abolish all kinds of things I don't like." Uh, and and in these medieval societies, the king would sort of deify themselves and talk about themselves as the person of action there'd often be a kind of populist element to it you know the the king was the protector of the peasants or some minority group so for example in a lot of europe jews were under the direct protection of the king rather than yeah. under their local nobility or city or wherever they lived mm. um which was not a great place to be because if the king was a little bit busy or not particularly interested the local yeah. authorities wouldn't protect you from a rampaging mob yeah, <laughs> so that's not as good a deal as it sounds. Yeah, it's a but, fickle. Um, it's a fickle thing. You, what you really want, are written guarantees that are yeah. uh, legible and equitable and robust and robustly enforced by a, a, a police force and magistrates and judges whose job it is just to just to you know adhere to the written rules. And a police force that lives relatively close to you and is sort of involved in your community, not one that's very far away. You know, you want, uh, to give it a South African analysis, you would want um, the metro cops to be able to help you and not have to rely on the hawks or something. Yeah. 
Exactly. But I think there's another, I think there's, so I, I, I like your medieval thing, but let, let's, let's bring it a little bit closer, like two centuries closer. I think one of the things that oh, Americans uh, kind of overlook is the, the abolition of slavery in the U.S. So the abolition of slavery in the U.K., great thing. We've talked about it a bunch. Uh, one of the things that made it great was that it was driven by popular demand uh, and it was ratified by Parliament. Uh, and relatively nonviolent as well. Yeah, super nonviolent. So in the US, they tried doing the same thing. Didn't quite work out. I mean, Abraham Lincoln was elected on an abolitionist ticket, uh, but the southern states secede. They're not into this. Uh, and so violence does become imminent. Violence becomes the only option if you want to maintain the union and maintain abolition. There's like a there's like a kind of factual world you can imagine where it's not Lincoln and the Republicans Congress trying to drive home abolitionism. Uh, and by the way, Lincoln does use a little bit of an executive order, but ultimately the 14th Amendment is passed by Congress. Uh, yeah. Instead, you can imagine the Supreme Court of the United States being called upon, and you could see a very clear legal argument that could be made. Look, our founding constitution starts with the words, you know, Declaration of Independence starts with the words, all men are created equal. Uh, and, uh, you know, these truths we hold to be self-evident. All men are created equal in the eyes of God and sort of have an equal right to pursue life, liberty, and, and happiness. Uh, and that is inconsistent with a law which allows people to be enslaved in perpetuity, uh, generations to come, and on the basis of race. This is just completely crazy. And so you can imagine, you know, people being like, you know, you can't trust Parliament to deal with this issue because half the guys are always going to hate it. And you can't trust the executive to deal with this issue because for them to do it is going to resort to violence because that is the primary uh, arm of the executive, you know. Is to, so is we to need, move. so as an alternative to these forces, we need enlightened individuals who have studied things and are removed from the political process. It's a yeah. seductive argument. Yeah. But can you imagine how, you know, oh, it would have been even worse and the aftermath of the Civil War was pretty bad. The Civil War itself means half a million people die. And afterwards, after a brief bit of reformation, you get the sort of regression, the grand regression. Uh, and, you know, we talked about it, Woodrow Wilson segregating the administration, all that kind of stuff. I think surely to God it would have been much worse if uh, this had been done by an act of parliament because the case would have been much stronger in the northern states, that this is not really serving our interest. This is some elite social engineering game. And in the north, there were a lot of people who weren't so keen on abolition. And across the whole country, I think it would have created a modus vivendi, a kind of way of organizing the peace that would have been much more fractious. It's hard for me to imagine a Supreme Court ruling that abolishes slavery that doesn't lead to multiple civil wars or a successful secession uh, and uh, a, per a perpetuation of the racial injustices that was even worse than than Jim Crow. Uh, and I do think that's a that's a tough thought experiment for many people to wrap their heads around because you think Jim Crow is kind of as bad as it could be, but Jim Crow wasn't as bad as slavery, and slavery itself no. wasn't always and as bad as it could be. You know, more people could have been killed, more people could have been more it's, abused. It's also it's also worth remembering that Jim Crow was not inevitability because Jim Crow is a creation. It's not like a immediate following on of the Civil War. They have this yeah. period of reconstruction where the country kind of there, there's the brief moment when it looks like it might be possible for the sort of racial injustice stuff to be to be completely healed um, and for the South to be properly integrated into a more non-racial society or whatever and for black people to enjoy equal rights. And then it's kind of dashed. Uh, yeah. when, the, when Reconstruction fails to to sort of heal the country and fix the South. And it returns then to Jim Crow. Jim Crow laws come in and uh, crush any hope of that happening. So I want to talk a little bit about why that hope was dashed, Nick. I know this seems left field, but it's really been on my mind. So This podcast, a tangent? No, it never, never happened before. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, but I think there's an interesting line here. Okay, so part of the reason it was dashed was that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And he was, he was a strong, charismatic, uh, clever leader who, who had the, both the force of will and the human empathy to, to 
uh, navigate the hectic he was, shots. He was also not the radical that his opponents uh, make him out to be, or that some of his supporters these days make him out to be. He was often took a fairly conservative approach to the abolition of slavery. He didn't want to just get rid of it and spend all his political capital on that. Uh, he wanted to basically slowly choke it away and halt the expansion of slave state power in the U.S. Um, so he was not going to be the kind of guy who was going to, you know, burn down the whole South again to enforce racial equality. Yeah, his idea, he, he was very keen on, also he had all kinds of opportunities to employ a scorched earth policy uh, against the South. So Victor Davis Hanson is a historian that we talk about sometimes. And I think what Abraham Lincoln had going was very much in line with Victor Davis Hanson's idea of how to establish a, a strong peace is to have a very big stick and a very small shout. So you do the opposite of Versailles. Versailles is like complete humiliation. It was all your fault. You guys are perfectly evil. Uh, but at the same time, not a lot of enforcement. What happened in the South was Ulysses S. Grant was a kind of butcher who just ground down Robert E. Lee, huge casualties on both sides. Uh, but the North could handle it because it had uh, it had more money on its side and, and it had more men on its side. Uh, but William Tecumseh, God, I can't say his proper name, Tecumseh, anyway, the, the other the grand union general who went to Atlanta, he employed a bit of a scorched earth policy. And his idea was, you know, these guys need to know that if we're going to come down to the south with our armies, we are we mean business. So he burnt down a lot of things. He 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 did all that he could to minimize civilian casualties. He wasn't like a a, a, a genocidal maniac, um, but there was a lot of scorched earth, and there was a lot of wrecking of uh, sort of prized monuments and infrastructure and stuff like that. Uh, he didn't just go after the army. He also went after symbols of Southern independence to leave imprinted in people's minds that if we are going to come here, you know, we, we are the ones with a big stick. And the North beat the South convincingly, thoroughly. Uh, the South had to come to the negotiating table with a begging bowl in their hands. So the big stick had been wielded. And then the deal was, we're going to keep our army in occupation of the South for a little while to make sure that you guys can handle this reconstruction. And, uh, you know, black justices and senators and congressmen were appointed uh, in the first uh, subsequent election, and they needed to make sure that people were going to handle that and allow black people to vote and all that kind of thing. So that was great. But Abraham Lincoln matched this with a soft talk. No, we don't have to uh, execute all of the generals. No, we don't have to immiserate these people in perpetuity some of the radical republicans wanted to confiscate the wealth of absolutely anyone who had supported the the, the government in the south as a traitor and try them for treason and just yeah. redistribute that land essentially to uh, freed slaves mass execution mass redistribution and that would have been a formula for creating a kind of middle east situation uh that big stick big shout thing that's you know, that's sort of part of the reason that I think there's so little stability in the Middle East is that people are then so aggrieved that guerrilla tactics get employed, that people get chased into the hills where it's very hard to get at them. And they form militias, guerrilla militias, and they and they perform acts of terrorism for, for hundreds or thousands of years uh, to answer grievances of that kind. And Lincoln thought much better to sort of establish the rule of law, much better to uh, uh, kind of try and make peace with your enemies, try and do a Mandela, Mandela type thing and see if we can grow the economic position of the South uh, strongly enough that black and white people can materially improve their lives under a state of rule of law, which means a state of freedom and equal rights. And this is a good formula, but he was assassinated, replaced a little bit by a tricky guy. And then like, I think two elections later, there's the, the Democrat, the Democratic candidate actually wins the election but there's a sort of confusion about how the electoral college thing is going to work. And he doesn't, he has a plurality and not a majority. And so the modus vivendi that they can, the, the sort of deal that they crack is they say, we will withdraw the occupying forces in the South, but in return, we'll get a Republican president. And the upshot of that was to sort of, was a very Versailles kind of thing where it's like, oh, well, the big stick is gone. We've got this like nasty talk about how we're super evil and slavery was super evil. But um, is the talk super helpful? I'm not sure. 
we've got this very nasty vilifying stigma against us and at the same time we've proven through this kind of democratic means that we can push away the forces that are holding us back and that emboldens uh white supremacist terrorists uh to go ahead and lynch and terrify black people to stop them from voting probably known as the uh the ku klux klan yeah and then to make matters worse after the weird fandango with Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft in the early ninth in the early 20th century America has this next promising moment where they have the war against the Spanish in Cuba uh which really unifies the north and south because they finally have a common enemy and and northern soldiers and southern soldiers are fighting together against these terrible colonialists and maybe they're going to get a colony out of it but as we've also talked about before uh, you know one of the one of the driving uh you know the poem that was literally written in order to try and get Americans to go into that war was the white man's burden this thought that white people are in it together and they are superior in the sense that they must be the most humble and not expect thanks and they must shut up but they've got to do the hard graft of like civilizing dark folk and it's just like anything that you do under that idea is just going to screw things up and sure enough it did Woodrow Wilson takes over the first democrat wins properly becomes solid president for two terms uh against the republicans which have now split against themselves and uh he he formally sort of uh makes federal wide decisions that reverse the race position so uh and, and of, of course he's also provides a lot of sort of rhetorical stuff about how the south is this noble lost nation and uh you know it's the real victims of the war and that kind of thing exactly so so this is an important part of the story and we've just glossed it briefly here but we have to talked about it more else elsewhere but there's another part of the story that i think is also super important and i've touched on this before it's sort of battle between booker t washington and web dubois and they are both very prominent black uh, political figures who are trying to make the case for two different ways of going about making America a non-racial peace-loving place. And Booker T Washington's idea is uh you know the war between black and white is going to be solved by the color green. Americans love money. If we can just sort of set up the rule of law so that black Americans can make money, then there is a stigma right now. There is lots of racism right now, but when you start seeing black industrialists and entrepreneurs and engineers and street sweepers and politicians and all this kind of thing using their money to pay for places at hotels and at restaurants and at theaters uh that stigma is going to erode and for sure some restaurants are going to deny them access and they are going to have less money and they're going to go out of business uh eventually and the ones that are at the cutting edge of sort of uh sustaining cosmopolitan ideals are going to be the ones that are going to outperform and this is the way forward and web dubois said no 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 you can't trust free market to solve a problem that is created by uh government race laws you need government race laws to solve a problem created by government race laws and that demand you know uh, booker t washington was by far the more famous and more uh, uh, sort of respected political figure but web dubois overtook him and became the founding father of the naacp which persists through to today and is uh, kind of the you know itself the kind of grandfather to the blm movement Now I was just going over an essay this week about WEB Dubois and about his about his thinking and this essay was published in 1987 I think and it's 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 1985 it's a historic essay uh it's written by Kwame Anthony Appiah your favorite I'm praise waiting, be upon his name <laughs> I'm waiting for Nicholas to laugh at me very good Okay. And this is Appiah's uh, sort of first essay about race in a way. And it it starts a move which has now become normalized. This is an interesting thing about acad- academia, you know. Ideas can start uh right up there in the ivory tower and then they get to a place where uh it's an idea that everyone's heard of before somewhere or another. And the idea what the basic idea that this essay is arguing for is that there is no way to define a race. that nothing that exists could do the work that people expect the concept of race to do now i disagree with apia on that uh uh it's not that he doesn't think that there is this kind of social convention about races uh 
it's that he thinks you can't you it's it's not robust enough that you can make sense of it i think you can make sense of it um i don't think it's a good idea for races to be uh influencing societies uh, but I, I just don't think it's incomprehensible in the way that he makes it out to be in this essay. And that's the popular idea that's come out of this. You know, if races aren't biological things, and in this essay, he does a really good job of going into uh, biology. Uh, homozygosity is a phrase that you will come across a lot in, in this essay. And it sort of, you know, it, it gives you the idea that if you are you know, here's one statistic, like if you're going to choose two random uh, white people and look at a particular uh, gene, the chances that the gene in the one white person and the other white person is different is 14.3%. But if you're going to choose two random people across the whole human population, the chances that any particular gene is going to be different is 14.8%. So 14.3 within a race versus 14.8 across a race. So it's like, like biologically, there's very little to start with that you're going to think is going to be uh, telling about races. And then it turns out that people have dug into the data further and further and they find, you know, well, that little difference, you know, where you, where you do find uh, major differences, they are just a, those major differences do play out in the in the in the brute sort of characteristics of skin and hair and bone. But if you if you're looking elsewhere, you, the, the 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 difference is literally vanishingly small. Uh, much more difference within races than across races. So the thought, the sort of the grand argument, and it's one that uh, we come across a lot amongst our some of our friends at the institute is well, if races, if you can't make sense of races as biological concepts that are deep in any kind of way that tells you about character or thinking or aptitudes, then races can't exist in any legible way at all. And everyone who's talking about race is kind of making some kind of conceptual error. Anyway, that argument was tabled here. And I think reading Appiah's data writing, he's kind of moved on from it himself. Uh, but it's an interesting argument. What what is really interesting about this essay is that he he gets into W.E.B. Du Bois' way of thinking about race. And W.E.B. Du Bois starts out by saying that he rejects the way that most black people are being asked to think about race in 1880 after the Civil War. He says most black people are are politically trying to minimize talk about racial differences. I'll quote directly. The American Negro, he declares, has been led to minimize race distinctions because black back of most of the distinctions of race with which he is familiar have lurked certain assumptions as to his natural abilities, as to his political, intellectual, and moral status, which he felt were wrong. Dubois continues, nevertheless, in our calmer moments, we must acknowledge that human beings are divided into races. And even if we come to inquire into the essential differences of races, we find it hard to come to any definite conclusion. So he, 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 he feels that the wrong answer is to try and say, look, there are persons and those are the most interesting things to look at. He says, no, 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 there are races, and we must look at these things. With these subtle forces have generally followed the natural cleavage of common blood, descent, and physical peculiarities. They have at other times swept across and ignored these. At all times, however, they have divided human beings into races, which, while they perhaps transcend scientific definition, nevertheless are clearly defined to the eye of the historian and the sociologist. And if this be true, then the history of the world is the history not of individuals, but of groups, not of nations, but of races. That is a very, very powerful idea. The history of the world is not the history of individuals, but of groups, not of nations, but of races. And he goes on to say, and he who ignores or seeks to override the race idea in human history, ignores and overrides the central thought of all history. 
So Dubois starts Ooh, out with this that's, very that's a bit spooky. Dude, and where did he get this idea? He got this idea because he'd just come back from Berlin, where he'd been studying under guys like uh, Teichenicher, who said exactly in, this, in the same way, the history of the world is just the history of races, and the duty of all persons is to subjugate themselves to the interests of their race. Uh, and before that, and the, and the idea was the Volksgeist, the spirit of the race. And before that, he'd been studying at Harvard, where all of his professors had studied in German and were au fait with the same kinds of ideas. And uh, from this, Dubois writes uh, his first book, which is called The Soul of Black Folk. And so his idea is very explicitly, the history of the world is the history of races, that souls exist and that there are like three of them or maybe seven of them, either the yellow, white and black, or sometimes he writes about the Slav race, the Anglo-Saxon race, the Teut Aryan race, the Semitic race, the Mongolian race, the Negro race. Uh, but he thinks these are the real units of value. These are the real divine sparks. It's from here that you find uh, real human interest. And so his, his recommendation sounds very sweet. If you sort of just abandon how disturbing things sound so far, his recommendation sounds very <laughs> sweet. He says what the Negro has to do is uh, is find its own voice. He's like all of the other races have made their grand con contribution to the grand human drama, but the Negro race hasn't been given its chance. And what the Negro race has to do is find a way of celebrating and finding its own culture, its own science, its own legal system, its own political system, its own art, its own you know, way of relating parents to children and husbands to wives and, you know, other kinds of sexual partners to other kinds of sexual partners. He really wants, uh, he really wants to celebrate blackness. And this is, and this is part of the, this is part of the very sad problem that America faces after the civil war is that at the same time that the civil war is going on, Bismarck is unifying Germany the Brits are abandoning their thought that what makes Britain great is its constitutional monarchy, is the fact that it has a, 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 a reason-responsive, publicly-sensitive form of government, which is not divine, which is not just blood hereditary. It's abandoning that idea for the sort of white man's burden idea. And the French especially after they humiliated in the Franco-Prussian War, themselves turn very race revanchist. They think, you know, there's the Frank race and the Aryan race, and the Aryan race is sort of more aggressive, more mean, and it succeeds in war, but the Frank race is ultimately more creative and more spontaneous and, and, and through solidarity will overcome this oppression. The French are also getting into uh, back into horrific kind of anti-Semitism. The Russian Slav race are doing the same thing. So it's like Europe, the European race-ness, racial idea of the state is really gaining energy at the same time that America takes the greatest effort to put that idea down. And in the, ref, in the period in the, of the Reformation, the battle of ideas, you know, the war has been won, but the battle of ideas is being lost primarily in Europe. But Europe has got enough influence uh, that it's injecting directly through people like W.E.B. Du Bois and so many others, black and white, uh, its, its idea of history being the history of races. And that seems to overwhelm America's mind uh, and, and prepare the soil for, for what is to come. And, and part of what's so bleak about the story is that Hitler takes takes the racial his historical notion to its logical conclusion and is blocked. And once again, it's America and others who, that, that comes to the rescue uh, and, and, and defeats racism with a gun and a bomb and with a lot of bloodshed. And yeah. so again, like after the Civil War, you have this moment, this hopeful moment with the founding of the United Nations, the declaration of sort of equal rights for all, uh, you know, a lot of non-racial kind of ideals. Eisenhower sends the military in to desegregate the schools. It's feeling very, very promising. 
But again, this idea that the solution to racism is more racism rather than... Correctly guided racism, yeah. Correctly guided racism. So, so W.E. Du Bois' thought was, no, you shouldn't try and minimize the difference between the races. It's just that you should take this vertical axis of white people on top, black people on the bottom, and you should make it horizontal. So whiteness and blackness are equally valuable just in different kinds of ways. Mm. Uh, that's, that's the, and that's the idea that is mobilizing American politics in the 21st century like nothing else. There is nothing as powerful as that idea in American politics today. That's my claim. And that's, and, the, and that's the sort of, that is kind of at the heart of the battle of ideas there as it is here. But there it's in some ways even more tragic because of the, because of the blood that has been spilt. Already, uh, yeah. And the in order to defeat that idea, the sacrifices mm. that have been made by black and white noble people to defeat that idea are are so easy to forget and overturn and it's it's actually been one of the interesting exactly it's been one of the interesting things actually about the the trouble in the u.s that uh the discomfort with the sort of jacobin revolutionary types with um martin luther king because people have pointed out correctly that you know a lot of things that martin luther king said are not really gelling that effectively uh with with many of the attitudes or desires expressed by these sort of neo-jacobins uh so they kind of run away from him and you can see that on the edge of their mind is that feeling of the way that uh you described people talking about mandela that that they're, they're they're but five minutes away from declaring him the greatest sellout of all time Indeed. And and what and the flip side of that is that W. E. B. Du Bois is untouchable in the States. Yeah. In my first semester, I took a a seminar, a writing seminar called Color. And you know, every every academic that we read was up for debate, excepting W. E. B. Du Bois, who was up for hagiography. And in the American public square, <laughs> like you just can't criticize W. E. B. Du Bois. And exp- I mean, you can if you're willing to uh Enjoy <laughs> yeah, if if you're willing to completely resign, basically the kind of uh, centrist terrain or the or the self-proclaimed centrist terrain, mm. and and that's and and that's such a nightmare. And I'm not picking out that example because I think it had the most historical influence at the time. I think that the I think you know uh, most members of the black race. In 1880 and 1890 and 1900, were so disempowered that if you want to see at a real politic level what was making the big difference, uh, you know you've got to look elsewhere. But I do think today uh, that equation is different. I think today, if you well, bring up if you bring up Herder Joseph Gottlieb Herder, who was uh, one of the German uh, scholars who influenced W.E.B. Du Bois' thought, then you've immediately got to start making apologies. And Herder, so Herder, you know, so soul politics was kind of W.E.B. Du Bois' thing, and you see it today in soul food and soul music. It means black food and black music. And people still talk about soul politics. Um, and, and certainly the idea underlies so much of what's going on. But Herder's, Herder's thought was, was a bit more confusing. It's not entirely clear that he was... You know, often it seemed very clear, in fact, that he was more interested in culture as being the kind of thing that you could voluntarily opt into or that you could opt out of voluntarily or that you could accidentally opt out of by just becoming too lazy and useless. Like if you don't know how to cook your grandmother's special recipe, then then you just don't you don't belong to that special club of people who know how to make proper gefilte fish or uh, or, or, or or whatever it is, marojo. And yet, so even though he had a much more sophisticated view, if you bring up Herder, you sort of have to start with a couple of apologies about the fact that him and Hegel and the like sort of uh, had ideas which were used by the Nazis. And you have to say, you know, we recognize that and so we want to be very careful. Whereas with W.E.B. Du Bois, you kind of need to start with a psalm to his greatness. 
and and no one tries to make excuses. No one. I mean, Appiah is Appiah's cutting edge because even 25 years ago he was cutting edge in trying to say, look, W. E. Du Bois was a really smart guy, and we should admire him for thinking out loud. And one of the great things about thinking out loud is you can see the the mistakes and the arguments. And you can and you can help a guy out, as it were. You you can help his ghost out by saying, "Look, this is where you went wrong." But you know, he definitely went wrong, and that is, you know, that was controversial in American academia 25 years ago, and it's still controversial today. And that's that's just hugely disappointing. Well, to be fair, a lot of things are controversial these days in American academia. Um, things that were 25 minutes ago really not that controversial so <laughs> yeah we we are going backwards man we, we are further into... away from being able to to criticize uh dubois than we were previously and isn't that one of the great ironies and and this is something that i got from saints from my history lessons at saints was like a claim like the history of the world is not the history of individuals but of groups and those groups are not nations or companies but races They're races yeah Dude, that can be true. If everyone agrees it's true, then it is true. If we organize our politics on racial principles, then it's true that trying to ignore the racial principles is is gonna is gonna make you miss out on what he calls the central thought of all history. It yeah. can be true, and it's becoming truer and truer. It's like in our control to make it true or not true. And although, human beings seem 100% committed on making it true. Yeah. Although I think we should have a discussion next time because we're pretty much out of time now um, about how intellectual actually the sort of uh, neo-Jacobins in the US are right now. Um, <laughs> there's a... There's an awful lot of uh, a lot, an awful lot of their arguments are along the lines of uh, don't believe your, your lying eyes. Mm. Um there was a there was a speech, yeah, but that is the if, height of intellect. <laughs> yes, what is it? Uh, it was an Orwell quote, right, where he said that uh, that's an idea so stupid only an intellectual could believe it. Exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, like I saw uh, uh, that that congresswoman from the U.S., Ilhan Omar, uh, famously part of the the woke squad in in Congress, giving a speech about how America's entire political and economic system needs to be dismantled. Well, you know there's some who claim that she wasn't really saying that but anyway um that it needs to be dismantled because it's irrevocably and uh, it's complete it's so completely racist that there's no salvaging it and i kind of thought to myself you know this is coming from a somali immigrant who escaped a war-torn horrible nation to rise to become a member of one of the most powerful legislative bodies in the world you know the within most. one generation yeah I mean, <laughs> it's like it's 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 as if she doesn't exist. She's talking about a world yeah. in which she's not possible, and it's it's a bizarre, bizarre thing. Uh, and there's but many dude, more that examples that are much more extreme. That, that is intellectualism. Yeah. I mean, one you, we 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 had a lecture from a guy who said basically he doesn't believe he exists, or that or that any of the people in the room exist. Like you have to do a lot <laughs> yes, of philosophy to get to that point. That that and, was an interesting edition of the Liberal Club. <laughs> and I kind of, and I suppose to try and bring it back to the judicial thing. I think that there is this, there is this strange, one of the one of the saddest things about the pattern of judicial overreach in America, is that it does lend credence to this claim. That, that human beings are, we just don't have it in us to actually have human beings operate a system that's going to dole out justice fairly. And that's the, that's the basic argument of critical race theory, is that the legal system is racist because it's operated by humans, and humans are racist, uh, QED. Yeah. So you can't <laughs> resort to that. You've got to resort to, uh, you know, protest, peaceful protest, violent protest, riots, looting, and so on. And I think that I think that that argument would well, actually, be no, they, much they more laughable if the American judiciary had actually been doing its job for the last fifty years, yeah, instead no, that's, of that's... often doing its job and often doing someone else's job. 
Um, of course, though, it's not just uh, you need to loot, riot, and burn because everything is racist. It's more like everything is racist and therefore we need to institute Marxist systems of political systems and economic systems. And you're like, no, wait, hold on. Where did we... We missed a, we missed a step somewhere here. <laughs> but um, Dude, but Marxists also... Like, an interesting thing about Marxists, like, Marxist judicial theory is it's so fraught because... A, a very strong element of it is the same is the same idea that you can't ever adjudicate what a per, you can never judge a judge on the basis of the reasons that they offer because there's always a private motivation coming from their class position that makes it impossible for them to really mean what they say and so you know on the one hand you have the anarcho guys who who think that you just need sort of spontaneous who 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 believe in spontaneity or jazz as the solution to the problem and then you have the other guys who think that what you really need is one genius to write the laws and because his class position is like full-on messianic genius uh he'll manage to to write it in yes. a way that you know, every judge will inevitably there's actually it's it's funny whenever I hear people talk about things like that. Like the whole idea of the enlightened elite who governs society is an idea from the Bronze Age, <laughs> literally. Right? You have a caste of priest kings or, or priests who rule over society because they have secret knowledge. So it's very funny the new ways that human beings endlessly can recreate and repackage that idea. Um, yeah. But yeah. but we need to we need to we need to call it to a close now because I think we're around in, uh, just over an hour. Uh, so what's your final thought for our listeners? And uh, then is there anything you'd recommend that people listen to and look out for? Um, I think final thought is the clutch. So it's useful. It's and really important to scrutinize people's private agendas. And I hope our listeners think about what Nick and I are up to and what everyone's up to and what they are personally trying to get out of any particular exercise. It's also useful sometimes to shelve that and be like, I'm just going to take this person at his or her word. I'm going to take it at prima facie face value and, and judge it on those merits. And if it makes sense on those merits, I'm going to go forward on the basis that it makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, then I'm going to get to the business of scrutinizing hidden agendas. And those are two different modes of thinking that are quite far apart. And you, I feel it in my personal life when I'm dealing with like family issues around lockdown and where we're we going to move and where we're we going to stay. I feel it in political issues, how we're we thinking about regulations. I see it in judicial issues. I see it in, in, in the broadest strokes and racial issues. And, and one could get into the private motivations of Dubois but we didn't. We just talked about his ideas. And, and, and you can evaluate someone's ideas and find them wrong. It's a different thing to then evaluate their lifestyle and, and how things line up and don't line up. And if, you've, if you feel the clutch, if you feel that change in gear, then I think you set yourself up for more insightful analysis of yourself and of everyone else than if you kind of ride on automatic... On, on a sort of tacit automatic where you do change gear because people are always changing gears between those two ways of looking at the world, but without realizing it. And when you don't realize it, then it's very easy for forces that you're not aware of to, to slip you into reverse uh, when you really should be going yeah. forward. Uh, I guess my final thought is more of a sort of uh, just going back to this thing about legislatures needing to do their job. Um, find out who the people uh, who claim to represent you are. Um, every so, even though we don't have constituencies in South Africa, um, except on a, on, a, on a ward level and municipal government, um, all the political parties tend to assign a politician to your area. Um, find out who they are and what they kind of do in parliament and uh, engage with them if you think it's worth engaging with them, if you yeah, think uh, that there's something, if there's something you can do. Um, constructively, Okay, <laughs> my father is one of them, <laughs> so I must admit that I'm not. Plugging. Yeah, that I'm not that I'm not entirely neutral in this question, um, but it is it is something that people should do. People should pay more attention to what legislatures are doing, and it is boring. But if you know Byzantine peasants in the 500s could pay attention to which Christological doctrine they needed to be. Uh, 
they were part of. Like modern people with far more education, wealth, and time can also spend just a little bit of time uh, finding out what exactly is going on in Parliament. I like um, that. And what's your recommendation? Hmm, I don't know what my recommendation is. Uh, what's good that I've been doing recently? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I think. No, I'll need to have two next week because I can't remember it now at the top. Okay, of my head. have two next week. Uh, my, my, you know what? Yeah. You know what? I actually, I actually do have one, uh, which is uh, there is an entire genre of music I have discovered on YouTube called bardcore. What they do is they take pop songs and they remix them to make them sound like they were played with medieval instruments. And then sometimes they sing the <laughs> lyrics again, but all the words are made to sound sort of more, uh, you know, old fashioned. Um, and it's very amusing. And you can find a hell of a lot of uh, good pop songs out there that have been translated into a sort of 1400s version. So go do that. It's a lot of fun. Fabulous. My recommendation is twofold. Well, I'll just say the one. My favorite thing that I watched this week, I think, is is replays of Cheslin Colby, uh, the South African winger, uh, scoring tries and ripping the field up. And what I love about that is that he is almost always the lightest person on the field and the shortest, but he is wily and manages to weave himself through water uh and i and and i think the best hope that we have for really good ideas is that they have that sort of chesn colby quality not of being i you know it's this is we're just not living in a time where the big dudes with the muscles and the and the height can push around the bad ideas and we're not in the time where they can just simply outpace the ideas and, and, and run down the wing. This is a time of alacrity, of sidestepping, of dancing, and of tenacity. And uh, I think he's, I think he's the, the greatest physical embodiment of that in rugby. And, and it's, a, it's a delight to watch. Very and, good. And there's, some, and there's something beautiful about the fact that you've got like these British and Scottish and Welsh and New Zealandish and Canadian kind of uh, dudes who make their own videos, who all kind of think Cheslin Colby is just the greatest thing to wear rugby boots. <laughs> and yeah, I do feel like we are so negative about so many things about South Africa. It's it's really it's 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 nice to remember that there are um, that there are great fans of of some of our national heroes out there. Excellent. Uh, and if you enjoy our musings, please uh, rate us, subscribe to us, uh, upvote us, whatever it is that people do. Um, I, <laughs> I I only I stick basically to just Spotify and iTunes, so I'm not familiar with the other podcast apps. But if you can, please give us a good word. Really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, keep the flag of liberty flying. We'll see you all next time, everyone. Stay thinking. <laughs>